Let's go to the Lord one more time to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess our own ignorance of your word and your purposes without your spirit illumining the pages of Holy Scripture to our hearts and minds. We fail to understand and we fail even to be interested in what you say apart from your spirit welling up in our hearts to eternal life. So Holy Spirit, we pray, rest on this congregation now. Feed us on the bread of life. And remind us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. For Jesus' sake, amen. People sometimes say that they would trust Jesus if only he'd let them see a miracle. Yet many people in the Bible saw or even experienced Jesus' miracles themselves and still did not trust that he is God. Jesus' resurrection, of course, is the biggest miracle of all which we Christians celebrate every Sunday. Yet during his earthly ministry, Jesus expected people to believe him to be the Son of God before he was raised from the dead. But even now that his tomb has been empty for 2,000 years, unbelief persists. So we demand miracles... Yet, when Jesus gives them, we're skeptical. Maybe that's why, as we've been studying the book of John, we've discovered that Jesus is actually not impressed with faith that's based solely on seeing him do miracles. Have you noticed this? But that raises a question, doesn't it? If we're not supposed to believe just because we see miracles, then what, pray tell, are we to believe and why? What are we supposed to do? Just take his word for it? Jesus answers that question for us this morning from John 4 and 5 on pages 889 to 890 of the Bible in the pew in front of you, pages 889 and 890. Now, this is a big text. We're not taking all of chapter 4. We're taking the end of chapter 4, but we are taking all of chapter 5. And the last verse of chapter 5 starts with the number 4. It's 47 verses long. It's a big text. It's a long text. So we're going to start by scanning for summary actions and teachings of whole paragraphs. We're going to be looking for the load-bearing I-beams in the text that create whole floors of meaning. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you're not looking at your Bible this morning, you're going to be really bored. So you need a Bible. You need to be looking at your Bible because I'm going to be referring to the Bible. We're going to be talking about the Bible. So look at your Bible, and you need to look at your Bible now as we look through and scan through these big floors of meaning. Or to change the metaphor, we're not just going to look at the quarterback and the receiver from the sideline. We are going to look at the formation and the movement of the whole play with drone footage from above so that you can see how everybody's moving. What are all the moving parts? How does this play work? Or again, we're going to look at the city grid on the map and then then map out our path across town. Otherwise, we can't know where we're going. So this big text, starting in chapter 4, verse 43, is made up of two healings which illustrate 
the teaching of Jesus that follows. The two healings are in chapter 4, verse 43, to the end of chapter 4. And then the next healing is chapter 5, 1 through 18. Those two healings are going to illustrate the teaching of Jesus that follows from chapter 5, verse 19, to the end of the verse. Those two healings elicit criticism from the Jews of Jesus. They say, hey, you shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath, and hey, what are you doing making yourself equal to God? And verses 19 to 47 in chapter 5 are Jesus' answer to those criticisms of what he just did. And that's a very common pattern. Jesus does things and then he teaches us the meaning of what he did. This is a pattern in all the Gospels and it's very simple. Show and tell. That's all we're looking at. It's a long text, but it's summarized by show the two miracles and tell. What did those miracles mean for who Jesus is and how he is calling us to respond to him? Here, again, Jesus restores life and health in his two healings, both based on his word alone. That's important. And then he teaches that he has in himself divine power and authority to give life. And that people should believe in him based on the testimony, not of John the Baptist, but on the testimony of his own works, two of which he just did, and based on the corroborating testimony of the Father himself in the Old Testament, especially what Moses wrote, which is what the Jews prized. From that show and tell, then, the point is for you and I to trust Jesus' word that he is God's living authority who gives you eternal life. Trust Jesus' word that he is God's living authority in the flesh who gives you eternal life. And there are three reasons for this. And those reasons are going to structure our time together in God's Word. The first reason is that Jesus' works testify to His divinity. Jesus' works, these two miracles in particular, testify, they witness to, they confirm, they proclaim, Jesus is God. So let's read them. John 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days... That he was in Samaria with people who believed in him. He departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That's the first sign. Second sign is in Jerusalem in chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, up in elevation. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So first, Jesus' works testify to his own divinity. Jesus had just been in Samaria in chapter 4, verse 43, where people had trusted him based on his word. After two days, he gets further up to Galilee, further north from Judea, through Samaria, up to Galilee, where he was originally headed via Samaria at the beginning of chapter 4. Now he gets to Galilee, and they welcome him, but only because they already saw him doing signs in Jerusalem. They had gone down there, too, for that feast previously. And we learned in chapter 2, faith based, based on sightseeing is not impressive to, go, to Jesus. That's not special to him. And since a prophet has no honor in his hometown, Jesus bypasses Nazareth on his way further north to Cana, where he had turned water to wine. And again, remember how he did that miracle? By his word, invisibly. No hocus pocus, nothing to see, just fill the jars with water, draw it out. In the next town over, Capernaum, There's a royal official whose son was dying. So the official comes to Jesus in Cana, asks him to return with him to Capernaum to heal his dying son. Jesus, though, tests his faith. He doesn't just want sign-based faith, faith based on seeing. That's what he got in Jerusalem in chapter 2. And he didn't entrust himself to those people. Jesus wants word faith, faith based on what he says without having to see anything. That is trust, right? Taking Jesus at his word. Do you trust me? And that's why Jesus tells him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Anybody can believe when they see a miracle you believe almost anything if you see it, no matter who does it. But the man isn't interested in the faith lesson right now. He just insists that Jesus come to Capernaum and heal his boy. Hey, hey, we're running out of time, Jesus. I don't have time for this little Sunday school lesson about faith. You got to come. But Jesus makes him believe, sets it up so he can only believe based on Jesus' word. You see this? Go, your son will live. Well, what's he going to do with that? He's got to go. If he believes him, he's got to go. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That is the kind of faith Jesus is interested in. Taking him at his word, taking him up on his promises acting on what he says, even when you have nothing else to go on. That is trust. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he is telling me in his word, this is what pleases him. He's telling me in his word, this is what he expects. So I'm going to do it, even though I don't know how it might turn out. But he's telling me I can trust him. He's telling me, take him at his word. And because the man believed, Jesus' word is confirmed for him before he even sees his own son healed. That's what led to saving faith for him and his whole household. And this sets up a contrast now 
in chapter 4, verse 54, between what Jesus does in Galilee and what he does in Jerusalem and how those things are responded to. Twice now, Jesus has done miracles in Cana of Galilee, and both times it's been by his bare word, invisibly. You only find out about it after the fact. And the response is faith. Trusting Jesus' word led to faith in his works, not the other way around. You see that? you got to trust what he said he was going to do before you saw him do it. And then you enjoy the fruit of the miracle. So what about Jerusalem? Is it going to work that way in Jerusalem? That's where Jesus is going next. Will people in Jerusalem, the religious hoity-toits, will they respond to Jesus' word with the same faith as these Galileans who talk with kind of a country bumpkin accent? In chapter 5, 1, there's another Jewish feast in Jerusalem. Jesus attends as an observant Jew. He arrives. He sees a guy 38 years paralyzed. That's a very interesting number. We might talk about it tonight. I'm not going to talk about it right now. But he sees this guy under the shade of a portico near a pool that was known for its healing properties. Jesus has compassion on him, and without even touching the man, he simply commands him to respond to his bare word. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And it happens. Now, is that saving faith? Well, the further you read the worse it kind of looks the more you know about this guy and how he responds. It is a healing. But how does he respond? Well, for starters, there's no gratitude or worship from this man. I mean, he's been 38 years paralyzed. He's finally healed and no thank you. No, Jesus, you are the Son of God. No, hey, look, everybody. Can you believe it? That's a pretty loud silence. Especially when you compare him to the healing story just prior in Galilee. There's no similar note from John that he himself believed in all his household. When people have believed, John has usually noted it so far. And whereas the dad in Galilee knew Jesus' name and reputation, and that was why he wanted to meet Jesus in the first place, this man doesn't know Jesus' name. He doesn't really even know who he is. And then when the Jews confront him about carrying a cot on the Sabbath, he basically points the finger in verse 11 to save his own skin. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. That reminds me of conversations that I've had with my children. He started it. He told me to do it. I'm not the, don't, don't, don't blame it on me. I'm not the one breaking the Sabbath here. I mean, I would never have done this. I would never have picked today. Not if I knew you guys were around. It wasn't my idea. And when they ask him who it was who healed him, he doesn't even know Jesus' name, which means he didn't seem to bother to even ask. He doesn't know the name of the guy who healed him from his 38-year paralysis. That's curious. And then instead of the healed man tracking Jesus down, Jesus has to track him down. I mean, if you were paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus slipped away into the crowd, wouldn't you think, you know what, where did that guy go? I think I'd like to talk to him. I'd like to say thank you. I'd like to take him out to dinner. I'd like for him to meet my friends. Nope. Jesus has to seek him out. And Jesus warns him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Well, that's a very curious thing for, God, for Jesus to say to this guy. Stop sinning. As if to say, 
I know the conversation you had over there with the Jewish authorities. Do the right thing. Stand with me. Don't go back to your old way of life, to the old authorities that you used to be afraid of. And yet, what's the very next thing the guy does? He went away and told the Jews. That's not testifying. That's tattling. He goes and does exactly what Jesus told him not to do. He betrays Jesus to save his own skin. I guess we know whose side he's on. He's on his own side. He just doesn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. It is this selfish, ungrateful man's testimony that leads the Jews to persecute Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. Oh, it was him. We got a beat on him. Thank you. You'll be duly compensated for your services. So it looks like something worse is actually going to happen to this man if he doesn't mend his ways, maybe in this life, but more likely in the next. Jesus healed you of a 38-year paralysis and you go and sell him out just so they don't throw you out of the temple? Friends, this man is a warning for you. He used Jesus, and then he betrayed him. We are saved from sin, not to sin. That's Jesus' own words to the men. Sin no more that nothing worse will happen to you. I healed you, so stop sinning. I didn't heal you so you could be healthy enough to sin. I healed you so you would be faithful not to sin. The saving response to the gospel is not, well, we all sin, and I sin, and I still like sinning, quite frankly. But hey, that's why Jesus died, so it's no trouble that I can't help but sin, because it's Jesus' job to forgive. And he won't mind if I'm out for myself from now on. Besides, what's he going to do, unheal me? He already did it. No going back for Jesus. So I'm safe in my sin. I'm safe to sin. No. Jesus told this man to quit sinning, notice, not as the condition for his healing, but as the consequence of having been healed. Not because he had already quit sinning, but, because, but so that he would quit sinning. In this man, we learn that just because Jesus solved your problem doesn't mean he saved your soul. You can experience a Jesus miracle without repenting. Without believing in a way that saves you from your sins. Without trusting that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Who takes away the sins of the world, not just our sicknesses. So friend, if you're more interested in being saved from your problem than you are in stopping your sin, then you're not just bad at being a Christian. You're not a Christian. Not yet. No matter who may have baptized you. You're not risen from the dead to new life with Christ in your heart any more than this man was who was healed by Jesus only to turn around and betray him as his first act of his newfound strength. Look, this guy had a real experience with the real Jesus in his own body and wasted it. Jesus saves us, not so we'll be more free to sin, but so we'll be more free from sin. And more like Him, more free to serve Him. And more like Him in His holiness, His love, His righteousness, His purity, His truthfulness, His grace, His compassion. Jesus meets you where you are. That's true. He saw this man in his paralysis, 38 years, Jesus saw him. He didn't see Jesus. Jesus saw him. He met him right where he was. That's true. But he didn't leave him there. And he doesn't leave you there either. 
He will meet you where you are in order to take you where He wants you and expects you to go. In new priorities and loves and a new righteousness. It's not that we become sinless in this life. No one is expecting you to be sinless as a Christian. Don't get the wrong idea. But it is that God's mercy to us in Jesus moves us to love Him with the love of an obedient child to a godly father. Grace has arrived to teach us to say no to ungodliness. If you are not interested in saying no to your favorite forms of sin, you are not risen from the dead with Christ in His holiness and love. You don't share His new life in you because His new life is a righteous life, a godly life, a holy life. And if that's not true of you, then you are still dead in your sins and you are still headed to hell. And you need to be raised to new life with Jesus in His resurrection. And He wants that for you. And so do we. Now, that may not seem very polite to say to you. I mean, here you showed up on Resurrection Sunday, and I'm telling you that you might be going to hell. I get it. But think about it. If I see you stepping out into a Chicago street and there is a CTA bus coming into your path and I don't at least yell at you, that's not love and it's not polite. It's indifference to your death. Indifference to your damnation is not polite, is hatred. And we want you to know you could be raised with Jesus Christ today if you believe in Him. Believe the message. In verse 17, thanks to this ungrateful man, the Jews persecute Jesus for doing multiple things on the Sabbath. It wasn't just that Jesus did the work of healing a man on the Sabbath. It was also that Jesus incited the man himself, once he was healed, to break the Sabbath, in their view, by carrying his cot. Now notice how the Jews in Jerusalem are trying to reject Jesus. They're trying to turn their understanding of the law of Moses against Jesus by their misguided stringency on the Sabbath law from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which Moses wrote. And Jesus, later in chapter 5, is going to turn that argument right around on them. But they're probably arriving at their own misguided conclusion from bad interpretations of texts like Nehemiah 13 and Jeremiah 17, both of which forbid carrying burdens on the Sabbath. It's true. Don't carry a burden on the Sabbath. But even in those texts, the burdens are burdens of business. What are they carrying in Nehemiah 13, 15 to 19? Or Jeremiah 17, 21, they are carrying, carrying merchandise for sale on the Sabbath. So they're setting up shop. That's a totally different thing than a 38-year 30 year paralytic being healed and then carrying his cot to celebrate his freedom. Totally different. And yet we are tempted to misinterpret the Sabbath just as badly as these Jews. Whether similarly or differently. See, we might say, Jesus criticizes people who take the Lord's Day seriously. So we should all just lighten up about Sunday. Isn't that what your flesh kind of wants to do with that? That's not the point. This is an argument for paying attention to what Scripture does say and does not say about the Christian Sabbath. The break we are to take on the Lord's Day, the rest we are to enjoy, is from our vocational work, our worldly callings in this life, our business, to show our trust in God's provision that if we stop working, He doesn't stop working. He continues to sustain us and provide for us. 
And it is a break for our spiritual rest and refreshment in God and the gospel, including for works of mercy. Like Jesus told his disciples in chapter 4, his food is to do the will of his Father in heaven. Ministry is rest to Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you should understand not just what that means, but how that feels. We have six days out of seven to get all of our worldly work done. That's a lot. Six out of seven. And God gifts to us a full day every week to find rest for our souls in His Word with His people in the reading, singing, praying, preaching of His Word and the illustrating of it in baptism and the Lord's Supper and doing works of mercy for others. God doesn't just gift us two hours a week. You are looking a gift horse in the mouth when you limit the Lord's day to the Lord's morning and then go and do whatever else you want thinking you check the box. You're cheating yourself. You're not cheating God. You're not cheating me. You're not cheating the church. You're you're cheating yourself because you're not taking God's full gift to you. You you misunderstand what even the Sabbath is all about if that's how you view it because what you're viewing it as is, oh, I'm going to give God some of my time. Oh, is that how you view Sunday? You're going to give God some of your time. Wow. I bet he really appreciates that. No, no, no. God is giving you his time. He is fitting you into his schedule. You are not fitting him into your schedule. The Sabbath is a gift from God to you. It's not your gift of time to God. It's His gift to you. The typical American evangelical doesn't even want the gift of the Lord's Day. Even the Lord's morning is often too much. The Lord's hour is all she wants. And so she re-gifts the rest of God's gift to the world, or worse, she tries to return it for cash. Here, I don't want this. I have better things to do. I have no use for this whole thing. As if you're fitting God into your schedule. God's gift should not be treated as your inconvenience. Jesus didn't treat it like that. Jesus didn't treat it as an inconvenience when he healed this man on the Sabbath and told him, take up your cot and walk. He was glad for the opportunity, even though he knew how it was going to turn out. He knew when he did this, this is the beginning of my conflict with the Jews. So Jesus answers the Jews' criticism in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. (laughs) The Sabbath is not about indulging the desire to be inert. Look, man, I'm I'm probably going to take a nap this afternoon. I want you to take a nap this afternoon. It's not wrong to take a nap on the Sabbath. Don't get me wrong. It is for physical rest. But it's ultimately about devotion to God and his purposes and worship in the world. Even God, when he rested on the seventh day, didn't quit working and upholding the universe by the word of his power. My father is working until now, and I also am working. I embrace my father's schedule. But in verse 18, the Jews will have none of this logic. They're recalcitrant, entrenched in their own position. Jesus' teaching makes them want to kill him all the more. Not just for breaking the Sabbath as they see it, but for making himself equal to God by implying that he is God's unique son. The rest of the chapter then is Jesus' dual answer to their double criticism that he is disobeying Moses and idolizing himself. Okay, let's talk. 
I've got answers to your criticisms, Jesus says. And that leads us to our second point. Jesus' words testify to his divinity as well. It's not just Jesus' works that testify to his divinity. Jesus' words testify to his divinity. He is happy to take the stand in his own defense. And he's effective. In verses 19 to 30 of chapter 5. Follow along with me. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the Jews just critiqued Jesus for doing the works that he worked on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're not resting. Jesus answers in kind. In verse 19 to 30 is Jesus' answer to their criticism that Jesus made himself equal to God. The Son is neither independent of the Father, in verses 19 and 20, nor in competition with the Father. Yes, I just said I am God's Son, but that doesn't mean I am independent of Him or in competition with Him. The Son is unable to do anything except what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus did for the man at the pool on the Sabbath what he saw his Father doing on the day he saw his Father doing it. Like Father, like Son. Jesus is acting on the Father's authority, not acting against the Father's authority in his healings, in his use of the Sabbath. And in verse 20, Jesus is acting from the Father's love in showing the Son everything that the Father himself is doing. A good dad, especially in the first century, especially in the trades, is going to say to his son, hey man, come here, let me show you what I'm working on. Let me show you how to do it. Here's how you work with the grain of the wood. Watch me. Let me teach you. Why is the father doing that for the son? Because he loves the son and wants to welcome him into the father's work with him. Same here. The father loves the son, delights in the son, approves of the son, and therefore shows and shares his work with the son. Jesus is not independent of the Father. He is in step perfectly with the Father. Jesus is not competing with the Father, but cooperating with the Father. And that's just the beginning, because the Father is going to show the Son greater works than these, he tells them. Verse 21, the Son doesn't just heal crippled life. He raises the dead to resurrection life, which means the Son is, in fact, equal with the Father in ability, authority, and divinity. Verses 21 to 23, as the Father raises the dead and creates new life in them, so also the Son does the same for whoever he wishes with God's own authority. In context, the man Jesus healed at the pool 
represents and anticipates Jesus' ability to create life from death. His teaching is explaining the miracle. The miracle is illustrating the teaching and proving it true. So when Jesus moves from giving life in verse 21 to judging in verse 22, he's simply making the same point but from the opposite direction. As Jesus has the power and authority to give life, to save, to heal, so he has power and authority to judge, to put to death, to withhold healing. Yet he is also reversing the charge on the Jews. You see this? Jesus is brilliant. I mean, I know that's an understatement. I feel weird even saying it. But man, when you see how Jesus argues... He is amazing. They are seeking to judge him for his disobedience to Moses about the Sabbath. They're seeking to prosecute him, to execute him. And so as they are trying to kill him for restoring life, of all things... He is asserting his authority to give life and he is warning them that he can actually judge them for their attempt to judge him for giving them the very proof of his own identity. That's a big time move. You're judging me for restoring life on the Sabbath? I will judge you for not believing what that miracle proved of me. You are the culpable ones for your unbelief. He has authority to judge them, the proof of which authority is his healing, the very reason they seek to execute him. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not the defendant here. You are the defendant. You're the corrupt prosecutor. And in verse 23, Jesus doubles down on his divine identity for which they want to kill him. Honor the son and you honor the father. Hey, look, just because you don't believe in me doesn't make me any less who I am. Honor the Son and you honor the Father. Fail to honor the Son and you fail to honor the Father who sent Him. Hey, my Father sent me to represent Him to you. And now you're going to reject me? You're going to kill me? You may as well try to kill God. You may as well try to kill the first person of the Trinity when you're trying to kill the second. Because I represent His authority. Again, Jesus is is asserting His divine identity from the fact of his divine ability to restore life. I healed him. A 38-year-old paralytic. And you want to grab me? You want to kill me on a technicality? Because I did it on the Sabbath? What other better day would there have been to do it? The Sabbath is the very day that represents our freedom in God. It's our jubilee. Jesus, though, in preaching his prerogative to judge in verse 22, aims at saving them from that very judgment. Look, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Already, eternal life starts now. You've already come from death to life. How? By hearing Jesus and believing who? Not just Jesus, but the God who sent him and who speaks in him and through him. Hear Jesus, believe God. That's your option, unbeliever. That's how Jesus talks to you in your unbelief and skepticism about him. 
Hear me. Believe God. Because he is speaking through me, Jesus says. Jesus is from the Father, authorized by the Father, speaks the Father's word, does the Father's works. Therefore, hear the Son, believe the Father. This is the way, the only way to avoid being condemned. The only way to move from death to life. Now look at that move, verse 24. But has moved from death to life. What? Has moved from death to life. What are you talking about? From death? Pinch me, man. I'm alive. There's no dream. But this phrase is full of anthropology, truth about mankind. Everybody needs to move from death to life. Why? What's that assume? It assumes everyone is naturally, apart from Christ, a dead man walking. People do not start off alive spiritually in order to avoid dying spiritually. Everyone starts off dead spiritually and must be made alive by Jesus. So you and I start off dead, dead in our unresponsiveness to God and His Word, dead in the sense that we are under the condemnation of a death sentence. You're doubly dead. You're really dead ontologically in your being, in your spirit. You're dead to God. You're unresponsive to Him. And you're dead because you're heading for spiritual death. You're under a sentence. But hope is here in verse 25 because an hour is coming and now is... Illustrated by Jesus healing the paralytic at the pool. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What's that mean? It means that just as the sick man and the paralytic heard Jesus' voice of power to heal, so even back then, in Jesus' preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, dead sinners were being awakened to new resurrection life by the power of God's Word and Spirit. And that resurrection of spiritual life in this world anticipates and even guarantees physical resurrection to eternal life in the world to come for all who trust Jesus and turn from their self-reliance and sin. The reason Jesus can give life is the Father's gift of self-sustaining life to the Son. But in verse 27, just as the Father gave the Son authority to give life, so the Father gave the Son authority to judge. Because Jesus is the Son of God and also the Son of Man from Daniel 7.13 to whom God has given power, authority, and a kingdom that will never end. He's the king of God's kingdom. He's the king that God chose. He's the one God enthroned in Psalm 2. The reason these Jews shouldn't be surprised then about this resurrection in verses 28 and 29 is that their own scriptures taught it. Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus is saying that he himself is the agent of all resurrection, whether to life or to condemnation. He is the one who will wake you up from your grave to either destiny. And the reason in verse 30 that Jesus is the right person for that role is that he alone is in a position to pronounce God's judgment based on what he hears and knows directly from the Father himself. Verse 30, all the judgment Jesus pronounces, he speaks based on what he hears the Father saying directly. That is why his judgment is just because he seeks his Father's will, not any independent will of his own. Jesus is not a maverick. He is a faithful son and judge, and he only speaks what he hears his Father saying. But we know what the Jews do not realize at this point. Our resurrection will happen because Jesus' resurrection has happened first. He has power to raise the dead, not only because he is God and has life in himself, 
but also because he, he himself has now risen from the dead bodily. He has conquered physical death in his own death and resurrection. He is judge and savior not only because he is God, but because he suffered our judgment as a man in our place for our sins on the cross. He died as the condemnation for the sins of all who will ever turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. So if you have never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, we would invite you to talk with us about that today. But there's another reason to trust Jesus as God's authority to give you life. And that third reason is Jesus' Father testifies to his divinity. Jesus' own Father, God the Father, testifies, has testified to Jesus' divinity in verses 31 to 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you will, will you believe my words? So in verses 19 to 30, Jesus had just been testifying to his own truthfulness. He had taken the stand for himself. In an informal way, Jesus has taken the stand in his own defense. But he knows that that raises a question. How can we know Jesus' testimony about himself in verses 19 to 30 is true? I mean, that's just not how trials work. I mean, every defendant thinks he's innocent, or at least says it, most of them. That is the question Jesus anticipates in verse 31. If I testify concerning myself, my testimony is not true. Not that he's lying, but that, he, that his uncorroborated testimony wouldn't stand up in court and wouldn't convince anybody who doesn't already believe it. Again, the testimony he's talking about here is verses 19 to 30 the testimony that he had given about himself as the Son of God, not independent of God or in competition with God, but equal with God in power to raise the dead and authority to judge, worthy to worship, eternal in self-existence. That is Jesus' testimony to himself. But there's another who testifies concerning Jesus, and it's not just John the Baptist. They sent to the Baptist. John did testify to the truth of Jesus as Messiah and Lamb of God, but that's not what he's talking about. They should still believe John the Baptist's testimony. They should repent for the forgiveness of their sins. And for a while, they did listen to John. But what he's telling them now about himself, and most importantly about his testimony to his own identity, is not for their condemnation, but for their salvation. Jesus isn't alone. Jesus isn't the only one who thinks this about himself. And they have now quit paying attention to the Baptist. And yet, there still remains a far greater witness to Jesus than John. The case for Jesus' divinity does not depend solely on John the Baptist's witness. It's still a slam dunk without John. Why? Because the Father testifies through Jesus' works. That's the first reason. These are the very works which they want to execute him for. You're throwing out some of the best evidence I've got for my own identity. 
they are so far off base that they take his confirmation as condemnation. The Father himself is the one who gave these works for Jesus to do. The Father is working, testifying to the Son and those miracles, even the ones on the Sabbath. And yet the Jews turn that evidence for Jesus' divinity into a smoking gun to prove his guilt. And if they do that, well, what's left of Jesus' case? If they forsake the testimony of the Baptist and they even misconstrue the evidence of Jesus' miracles, then what is left of Jesus' case for his own divinity? And the answer is plenty. Plenty. Because the Father testifies through the Old Testament words in general. The the other witness besides the works, above the works, even before the works, is the Father himself. The Father testifies to the Son, or more accurately, has testified. It's perfect tense, past completed action with ongoing results. Yet the very idea of the invisible Father testifying raises a question in verse 37. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Now how does that kind of God testify in the real world? The Father has never appeared in visible form to Jesus' generation. He hasn't spoken audibly for everyone without exception to hear unmistakably from heaven. That is not how the Father has borne his testimony to Jesus. But showing up visibly and testifying audibly are the only ways humanity is able to testify. So if no one has heard the Father's voice or seen his image, then how can the Father testify to humanity in any meaningful or corroborating or convincing way? What's more, in verse 38, you do not have the Father's word abiding in you because you do not believe the one he did send. The one he sent might be John the Baptist, but probably here is Jesus. Jesus is the one they're not believing, and that's why they do not have the Father's word in them. That's why they don't believe the Father's previous testimony about them, about him. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and these are they that testify concerning me. And yet you will not come to me in order that you might have life. Now look there in your Bible, verses 38 to 40, in the relationships of those phrases. Verse 38, you do not have the Father's word in you, is paralleled by verse 39, you search the scriptures which testify concerning me. The Father's word, the scriptures that testify. In verse 38, you don't believe the one the Father sent is confirmed by verse 40. You will not come to me, the one the Father sent, to have life. So in verse 37, the Father has testified concerning me is paralleled in verse 39 by the scriptures as they that testify concerning me. The Father has testified The scriptures are they that testify. The Father has testified to the Son in scripture. The scriptures are the Father's testimony to the Son. So the Father has already testified to the Son in the Old Testament scriptures, which the Jews read without reference to Jesus. So even though they think they have eternal life in reading of the Old Testament and in their obedience to the law, their reading of it is Christless, and so it is also lifeless and even Godless. The Father's Word is not in them, no matter how much they read the Old Testament, if they don't read the written Word as the Father's testimony to the incarnate Word. So you can, you can read the Bible and be really moral, even religious and scrupulous about religious days and religious diets. You can be even more conservative about the Sabbath than Jesus. You can say amen to lots and lots of Scripture teaching. And yet, if you don't come to Christ in your reading of the Old Testament, if you are saying amen to a Christless interpretation of Scripture, then even your agreement with Scripture is not saving because it is ignoring the Savior Himself. And so you are still dead in your sins and headed to hell. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from man, doesn't mean he's unwilling to accept it, but that he's, he doesn't seek it sinfully. 
nor does he get it as he deserves, since they don't trust him as their Messiah. They'd have trusted anybody else if they came in their own name, but not Jesus coming in the Father's name. If they really love God, they would love Jesus. In verse 44, the problem is that they want acceptance and approval with each other more than they want it with God. So when Jesus comes, and he's not what anybody expected, the Jews don't receive him for fear that other Jews in power will kick them out of the synagogue for trusting Jesus. Fear of man has always intimidated people from coming out for faith in Jesus. Don't let that be you. Trust God's testimony to Jesus in all of Scripture and come to Jesus in a faith that repents, no matter what other people might say of you or think of you or do to you. Because the Father testifies through Moses' words, in particular. Even though the Father has handed all judgment through Jesus the Son, Jesus says that he himself is not the one who will condemn unbelieving Jews. Moses will condemn them because he is the one they're hoping in. Now look at this move. Jesus is running circles around these guys. He's probably running circles around us. The Jews were the ones trying to condemn Jesus based on Moses, Sabbath law. But Jesus reverses that charge on them because, in fact, Moses, in verse 46, wrote of Jesus, and the Jews do not believe Moses wrote of Jesus. Therefore, they don't even hope in Moses rightly. You can't even hope in the wrong thing rightly because you don't believe Moses wrote of Jesus. So Moses will condemn them not for believing that Moses, for not believing that Moses wrote of Jesus. That's why Moses is going to condemn them. Moses is going to say to them, I was writing about Jesus. You didn't believe that I was writing about Jesus. Therefore, you misunderstood and you took my words out of context. So as a Jew, if you don't believe God's own testimony about Jesus through Moses, how are you ever going to believe Jesus' own testimony about himself? You don't even believe the Father's testimony in your own scriptures. How are you going to believe me? Of course you think Jesus is a charlatan because you have been calling God himself a liar by not believing that God testified to Jesus through Moses and the whole Old Testament. But this is nothing new. This is not a new point. This is really the culmination of a theme that we've been seeing all the way through John. Throughout these opening chapters, both John the Evangelist and Jesus have been showing that Moses was testifying to Jesus again and again and again. In John 1.51, Jesus is Jacob's ladder from Genesis 28. Moses wrote that. In John 1.14, Jesus is the one who tabernacled with us in fulfillment of the Exodus tabernacle, which Moses wrote of. And in chapter 129, Jesus is the Lamb of God from the Exodus Passover and from the Levitical sacrifices. In John 3, Jesus is the bronze serpent lifted up for all to look on and then be healed from Numbers 21, another Mosaic book. In John 2, Jesus' resurrection body is the rebuilt temple where God has chosen to make his name dwell from Deuteronomy 12. And he is the better wine of the new covenant that fills the jars of all the Old Testament forms and cleanses like no other Old Testament sacrifice could. Chapter 4, Jesus is the spring of life, better than Jacob's well in Genesis 28. He will be the new tabernacle temple, better than either Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim from Deuteronomy 27. And what is the very next Old Testament scene that Jesus is about to fulfill in John 6? Jesus is the true manna, the real bread from heaven from Exodus 16. that Moses called down. Already in the first five chapters, John the evangelist and Jesus have both proven that Moses wrote of Jesus as the Father's God-breathed and covenant-sworn testimony in the, to the Son. Every single one of the five books of the Pentateuch has already been called to witness as testifying to Jesus. And in very point of fact, the Sabbath law itself pointed to Jesus as the one who would usher in the ultimate Sabbath rest by his own work of sacrifice and redemption for us. Jesus himself is our Sabbath, and yet the Sabbath is the very thing the Jews misconstrue in order to condemn him. Then again, if you don't believe the Father's sworn testimony to Jesus through Moses and Scripture, how are you going to believe Jesus himself when he takes the stand in his own defense? 
All this, again, turns to explain Jesus' statement in verse 30. If I testify to myself, my testimony is not true. It won't stand up in the court of law. It won't stand up without corroborating testimony. And it especially won't be true in your eyes as you pretend to play judge, jury, and executioner. Not if you don't believe the stellar witnesses that have already been called to testify on Jesus' behalf. Not if you don't believe John the Baptist or Jesus' works themselves, or the Father's sworn affidavit about Jesus' identity in the form of Old Testament Scripture, and especially the law of Moses itself, which you claim to believe. The question then is not why should you trust in Jesus, but why would you not? Jesus really did come down from heaven He really did work miracles. He really was foretold by Moses in all of Scripture. He really was crucified for our sins. He really did rise from the dead as God's vindication of His righteousness and of His identity as God's Son. You really can be raised to eternal life with Him by faith. And you really do have God's Word on all of it. Let's pray. Father, we pray, convince more sinners that you sent Jesus and that you testified to him by his miracles and in them and through his own teaching and that you have been testifying to Jesus from the time the books of Moses were written so that we can know that Jesus' testimony about himself is true. Convince more sinners. Convince more skeptics. Gather them in to your fold. Open their eyes that they may see your testimony to Jesus for what it really is. For his glory we pray.